That's fantastic. Anyways, uh, yeah, it's good to be here this morning. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to Glenn uh, uh, in his absence. Uh, maybe he's watching on Facebook Live, but I, I think uh, he and Janice, they had gone to uh, Vancouver Island for the weekend, and I'm pretty sure they're somewhere there uh, at a church where they're worshiping with us. So they're not physically with us, but uh, in spirit, with God's family, definitely with us. Um, before we start, let's just uh, pray, and uh, then we'll get started with today's uh, message. Uh, Father God, um, Lord, Lord, you know our hearts. Um, you know us uh, inside and out. You know every uh, single thought. You know our past week. Uh, Lord, you know our past. You know everything. Um, Lord, you are the one who had called us from the mother's womb. Even before we were formed, you say, Lord, in your word that you knew us. And uh, so uh, we come to you in that humility and in that uh, posture this morning to acknowledge you as God and uh, to give control to you and to glorify you and to praise your name. So, uh, Father, I thank you that we can do that by the blood of Jesus. And, Lord, I come and uh, pray this morning uh, the prayer of the psalmist, and I pray, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Taste me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there are any wicked ways in me. But come and lead me and lead us in your ways. Everlasting, Lord. Um, come and lead us, Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, um, may the, the gospel, Lord, which is folly to the world, which is uh, unwise to the wise, may it be today the power of God, the power unto salvation. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. From time to time, I'm just going to take a sip of water there and, uh, yeah, to stay hydrated because uh, I'm expecting this one to go long. We didn't plan for it. Nick uh, had uh, missed out on one song and he just told me it unintentionally. So, um, yeah, uh, by the Lord's grace, uh, I've been given 60 minutes here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. All right. So, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Rudy. Um, I've been here at the Rock Church now for eight months. Uh, my wife and I, Jean, uh, my wife Jean and I, and our baby uh, girl Miriam, we moved here from Williams Lake, which is in the interior, and um, we moved here with that specific purpose to join in here with the Rock Church and with God's family here, and uh, to join in with Glenn um, to do an apprenticeship with him. Uh, the main objective is. Really, in the end, uh, to follow God's call in our lives and specifically um, sensing the call for church planting and sensing the call to, to go where God wants to send us. And so we're here with open hands and we're praying and we're seeking and we're asking and, and we're trusting that in the time that we're here, we're not sure how long that will be, that God will reveal to us uh, what it is, what is His, His calling in our lives with regards to that. And so... I'm currently in a, a process which is called uh, elder in training. So I meet with the elders and I meet with Glenn on a regular basis. Uh, so Glenn is currently my mentor and uh, helping me to develop and uh, yeah, to just uh, become better at the skill of preaching and teaching and also how to shepherd God's uh, people. 
But that's enough about that. Uh, I think it's uh, very important that we jump into the Word very quickly here uh, because there's really a lot to unpack. And uh, it all ties in with what we heard last week that Ling taught on in Luke 11. And I think his uh, portion was from verse uh, 16 to 28. We are uh, in Luke 11, the Gospel according to Luke, verse 29 to 36. So I hope you have your Bibles here if you can turn there. Luke 11, verse 29 to 36. And, no, that's not the slide. Okay, the title of my message this morning is Believing is Seeing. Believing is Seeing. And we're going to unpack it out of this text. So let's read together. I will read for us. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. That's God, and we, we believe that is the infallible Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit for us this morning. If I were to ask you this morning, and you'll get used to this, this is how Rudy goes about doing it. I always start with asking a question because like I said to you the first time that I preached, my background is, is teaching. I was a high school teacher for, uh, what is it now, for 12 years. I got my qualification in South Africa and then we moved here to Canada. And, and so I was a substitute teacher there up in the Caribou, Chilcotin in Williams Lake but now transitioning into this type of teaching. So I regularly start with questions, and I want to ask this question this morning. Um, what does it take for you to believe something? And you can just shout out or give an answer. Um, anyone, last time it was only Maureen, so if there's anyone else, that would be great. Okay, but what, what, think about it. What does it take for you to believe something in order to say, yeah, that's true? Evidence. Evidence. Okay, evidence. Anything else that is uh, better than evidence or proof? Personal experience, personal experience. Okay, that's a good one. I didn't even think of that, but definitely. Have I experienced it? Okay, and it can be very, that, in that regard, it can be very subjective, whereas evidence and proof is uh, the majority of the time very objective, but yes, we cannot go and nullify experience, right? 
Okay, that's pretty much what I was going for there, and I would agree with you. <laughs> so you guys are on track. The Holy Spirit is at work. Okay, um, in, in that regard, yes, we believe that seeing is believing. That that is the way that we can know whether something is true and whether or not something had happened or, or whatever the situation is. We, in our lives, deal with situations like that. Uh, when someone is convicted of a crime or accused of a crime and taken to court, what do they present? They present witnesses, people that have to give an account of what happened, or they look at the data. They look at what are the clues that point to uh, the, the most reasonable outcome that we can think that is associated with this crime. Um, something that I was thinking about this week is to look at uh, the video of the court case of O.J. Simpson. How many of you remember that in the 90s? Okay, yeah. Okay, so O.J. Simpson was this very famous NFL football player, was uh, married to this beautiful blonde uh, wife, uh, Nicole Brown, and then all of a sudden it was on CNN News, she had been stabbed and killed together with her, I think it was her boyfriend. And then they had this car chase on TV. OJ is on the highway. The police is chasing him. He's, I don't know, driving 180 kilometers per hour and he won't stop. And it's pretty evident that he's running from something, right? It's like clear. Listen, this guy feels guilty about something. And, uh, but I was looking at this court case video where they, the uh, prosecuting attorney had the gloves that they had found on, I believe, on the murder scene, and they had shown that these gloves were purchased with OJ's credit card at a specific store, and they had the gloves, and they, they asked him to try it on, and of course, OJ had these huge, big hands, and he's, he's trying these gloves, but he's like, you know, he's, it, it doesn't fit, and, and he tries on the other one, and he's showing it doesn't fit, the glove doesn't fit. And you could see everyone's faces at that point. It was a, a big turning point in this case. And then in the end, um, with everything being presented out of that case to the, the judge and to the jury, they came to the decision that O.J. Simpson is not guilty based on the evidence and the things that were submitted there. Now, in the 19th century, there was a, a mathematician and philosopher, W.K. Clifford. He said the following in an article that he published entitled The Ethics of Belief. He said, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything on insufficient evidence. Now, this doesn't surprise us because since the Enlightenment, this has become our view of the world and how we view everything or anything that we believe. What has become the norm is that the scientific method of having a hypothesis and then being able to observe, test and experiment in order to prove whether or not that hypothesis is true, that is the only way. And the problem, however, is with that statement that W.K. Clifford made is that the universal demand for evidence cannot be met in itself, that statement cannot meet that own demand. It is impossible to have evidence for every decision or every situation always. It is impossible. It's a self-refuting claim. And the question is, how many of us actually live like that? How many of us live with exact proof of everything and every decision that we make? How many of us invest our money like that? How many of us 
that have maybe got stocks. We invest money in every company or any company, maybe Apple on the New York Stock Exchange or Toronto Stock Exchange. Yeah, we've got information, we have their financial statements, we have some research that we do. But do we have exact proof and guarantee that, you know what, we're going to receive the growth within three or five years or ten years that they promise? To make it practical, I'm married to a doctor, and she knows my medical history and with regards to my family history. In my family history, we have heart disease and there's cancer, there's... Uh, bipolar depression, schizophrenia, there's alcohol addiction, all kinds of things. But every night when we go to bed, she does not have an ECG machine, she does not have a, a blood pressure a thingamajig or whatever you call that monitor or measure thing. She doesn't test every night whether or not I'm going to wake up the next day to give me uh, peace that, okay, Rudy, you can go to sleep, you're going to wake up next morning. Okay, it doesn't work like that. We just don't live that way. Now, it's very easy for us to look at this and say, okay, but, you know, it didn't, the people weren't like this in Jesus' day. They, they were just operating out of faith. They were just, it's blind faith. Well, not entirely, right? If we look at the context of this text, as I will point out, you know, Jesus stepped into a situation where, yes, the majority of people in the Jewish culture and, and the, the situation was that they had a monotheistic worldview. In other words, they believed in one God. The Greco-Roman culture, they were polytheistic. They re, uh, believed in many gods, various gods. But together with that, they had their philosophies, they had, they had their debates about what the purpose of life was. And so they were also looking for proofs. They were also looking for evidences. But when it came to that culture, they specifically were seeking signs and wonders, especially the Jews. The, the Greeks and the Romans, they were looking for wisdom. They were like interested, okay, so what is truth? You know, that's why Pilate, when, he's brought, uh, when Jesus is brought to him, you know, he, he throws out this flippant statement, truth, what, what is truth? In other words, it's a statement of like, there's no such thing as absolute truth. That was part of their culture. And so, they also, just like us today, believed in seeing is believing. But I want to submit to us today, believing is seeing. So let's unpack that. Sermon outline, and I'm following uh, Glenn's example since he is my mentor, and uh, giving you a three-point sermon. Um, Andrew, Georgia, Embray always makes fun of us uh, that, you know, the first point is super long, the, the second point is a little bit shorter, and then the last point is like so short. So it's, it's no different today. It's actually just one point. Jesus Christ is the answer. That's the only point. But my three points is or are that believe the sign, see the light, and then be the light. So let's look at that. And I'm jumping ahead. Exposition, exposition of the text. Let's have a look at verse, verses 29 to 32. Just going to take a drink of water here. I've done the intro, so I'm over my nerves. Now we can just, you know, we can just relax. Do you guys feel relaxed? I think I'm feeling relaxed now. <laughs> okay, first point, believe the sign. It says that when the crowds were increasing, he began to say that genera this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You know, so in this context, again, Jesus is in this confrontation with a crowd and with the Pharisees. And the question is, what is their problem with Jesus? Okay, he's been performing miracle after miracle after miracle since he started his ministry. But they, they keep asking for more signs. You know, you can just imagine this situation is the equivalent of, you know, I, I grew up in the 90s, 80s, 90s, sort of like the scene where, was it the 90s or 2000s when Eminem came onto the scene? Was that 90s? Yeah, sort of like that, right? And you can imagine, it's sort of like this. How many of you remember that movie uh, by, uh, by Eminem? What was it? Eight miles? Seven miles? How many miles? Eight mile. Okay, it was eight mile. Okay, so it's these rap battles between uh, these rappers. So you can imagine something like that. It's an equivalent of this. Jesus is on the scene. Boom. Uh, the situation is he cast out a demon uh, that was a mute demon. And he's like, you know, all of a sudden you've got the crowd and the Pharisees are there. And there's a DJ to yo, Jesus is on the scene. And JC steps into the house. Okay, and he's He's going on, he's, he's doing his thing, and the Pharisees jump in, and they're like, hey, yo, boom, 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 and they do moves, and they're like, by which power are you driving out this demon to the power of Satan? Yo, 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 okay, and so Jesus is like, what on earth are you guys talking about? Okay, take a breath. I know some of you guys are shocked. What just happened here? Okay, um, I'm trying to make this relevant to our situation today, what the context could be. If you're not familiar with that situation, what just happened, I won't do it again. Okay, um, what happened in that situation is Jesus cast out a demon that was mute. As you would have noticed out of last week's message, Glenn pointed out very uh, truthfully and correctly that in the culture in that day and in that situation, casting out of demons was not a weird thing. The rabbis were doing it. Their followers were doing it. So when they were accusing Jesus of doing it by the power of Satan, he destroys their faulty logic and he says, listen, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if I'm doing it by the power of Satan, by whose power are you guys doing it? So the issue here is, what is going on? Why are they freaking out? Well, the answer lies in this, that the rabbis had come up with, as they always did, extra rules and protocols, just they, as, as they used to do when it came to, for example, the Sabbath, you know, keeping certain laws with the Sabbath, or how far you may travel on the Sabbath day, and that type of thing. They started realizing, okay, but listen, there are some miracles that we can't do. We don't have the power to heal a Jewish leper. We can't cast out a mute demon for the, the following reason. Uh, the method that they used by casting out a demon was to speak to the demon, find out what's the name of the demon, and then cast the demon out. But the situation was, if there's someone who's possessed by a mute demon, that person can't speak, then it's like, demon, what's your name? The thing can't tell you. Then it's like, sorry, we can't do it. Bad luck. That was the situation. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, he does one of the miracles that they know. Boom. This guy is here with authority. He's doing a messianic miracle. Messiah is here. Another one was healing a man born blind. And then the fourth one, 
resurrecting someone from the dead. Those were the four ones that they come up with. So Jesus had been in his lifetime and in his ministry up to this point, performing miracle after miracle after miracle. But even the ones that they said, hey, listen, these are the top of the miracles. This is how we will know the Messiah's here. He had done that. And even still in this situation, they have what? Unbelief, it says. And Jesus knows it. He knows their hearts. They still won't believe. The question is why? Their hearts had become hard because they were expecting a military leader that was going to come on a horse with a sword and with an army who was going to destroy the enemies of Israel and he was going to establish the kingdom of God forever in that place and then Israel will rule and be free. They were not expecting, they were not seeing Jesus for who he truly was and God incarnate coming to live amongst us as a human being. They were not wanting to see a humble person that came with the message that he came. They did not like his message of love your enemies, pray for those who hate you, bless those who persecute you. They did not like that. So the crowds gather and they, in verse 16, they ask for more signs. But it's not going to help because they've already made up their mind. This is not Messiah. This is not the uh, Yeshua Mashiach, the anointed one to be king. Or this is not Mashiach, which is the Hebrew for, for Messiah. This is not the anointed one to be king. This is, this is not what we see him as being. Now, this is the thing about crowds. Sorry, I missed uh, going to my first slides there. This is the thing about crowds. Crowds either love you or they hate you. Crowds either gather to praise you or they gang up against you. And Jesus was never into crowds. He knew what was in man. If I can point you towards some scriptures... And that's not the one, um, uh, this is the one, sorry. That illustrates that, that we see that in John 2, verse 23 to 25. It says, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Question is, how does that relate to us? My application and challenge to us this morning is, you know, how many of us do this with Jesus? How many of us do this with His people, with His body? We come here for entertainment. We come here to sing a couple of songs and do our rituals and, oh yeah, this is the ritual and at the end we, we've got our uh, communion and then we go off and, and then we've just soothed our conscience but in the end, has there been a change of heart? How many of us call upon Jesus to do various miracles and, and get us out of so many things, but when it comes to following Him and obeying Him truly and passionately and in love, we fail? I want to tell you a quick story here. When I was 17, um, me and a couple of buddies, we were fooling around one Friday evening in a shopping mall. And uh, this mall was basically empty. And in the middle, in the aisles, they had these big uh, vendor carts. 
And we thought it was funny that, okay, we, we started pushing these carts around and then, then run with it, push it, and then uh, one guy would catch it. And I don't know, we're 17 and silly, right? We think this is stu- uh, uh, funny. It's actually stupid. Uh, okay, and uh, so we do this and then I do this. I, I, I push it and I think my friends are going to catch it and they don't. Uh, this cart runs through the aisle and it completely uh, obliterates a big shop's front window, like those windows here in front, maybe bigger. And we see this, and we run. <laughs> We're like, we, get, we need to get out of here. But very sophisticated, they've got their cameras and everything, and boom, security is on us. They catch us, they handcuff us, they phone the police, because they phone the owner, the owner wants to press charges, there's no mercy, no grace, and we are in the police van towards the police station. On the way there, I pray. I grew up as a Christian, believed in Jesus, was in uh, a school that, you know, we heard the gospel regularly, but I was not in church, but believed in Jesus, and I knew, okay, we need a miracle. So I was praying, praying, asking Jesus to help us, and I prayed, Jesus, if you get us out of this mess on Monday at school, in front of the whole school in our assembly that we would have every Monday where the gospel is preached, I will ask the principal if I can share a testimony and I will give my life to you because I knew, I knew that even though I believed in Jesus, I was not totally committed and following him with my whole heart. Guess what happened? Long and the short is Jesus got us out of the mess. And that Monday morning, I went to school. I went to the principal. I told him the story. He said, sure, really? Tell us your message. And I stand in front of the whole school, and, and I told them that. And I said, listen, repent. <laughs> you believe me? No, I did not do that. I did not do it. That Monday morning came, it was assembly, and I remember it. I sat there, and I knew the promise I'd made to Jesus. He got me out of the mess. He performed the sign and the miracle, but I was not willing to stand up and give my life to Him. I'll tell you later on what happened. Okay, I'm going to leave you hanging there. Now I've got you again, okay? Because some of you were dozing off. Okay, now I've got you, right? So, at the end, I will bring it back to that point. But to bring it back to that question that I'm asking, you know, we need to check our hearts with regards to Jesus because it's not as if signs and wonders are bad. They are good. The, the, the purpose of signs and wonders, the purpose of miracles, because God still does miracles today, is to point people towards Jesus and to want to follow Him and to obey Him. Glenn pointed it out last week at the end of, of his text that he was preaching on. You know, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey and follow Jesus. But in our culture, it's really easy for us to come to a funky church with a coffee shop. We have a couple of coffees, ha <laughs> ha, have a laugh. And we listen to the preacher, a good message, great music. I've gone through this ritual. The question is, what does my life look like during the week? That's what Jesus is interested in. Is there a heart change? And is there not just change in my action, but is there change in my mind and what I think and what I believe and what my desires are? Because he's really interested in what we want to do. Jesus is interested in what we want to do because it is out of the heart that these things come. Hence why the Bible says, 
Guard your heart above all things, for from it flows the fountains of life. So let's move on to the next part. Jesus says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. When Jesus says this, this generation is an evil generation. You know, does he imply that generations before that were not evil? And does he imply that all generations after that will not be evil? I don't believe so because it says he knew what was in man. And when he says this generation, it is still speaking to this generation and every generation that were to come up to the point that Jesus is going to return. Listen to what the Bible says in Genesis 6 verse 5. It says, God saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17 verses 9 to 10 says that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I don't think I have this last one on there, but Psalm 53 verse 2 to 3 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, but they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. How about our generation. Can we feel the heaviness of this? This is not nice. This is not this is this is not this bad news. The Bible clearly makes a, a diagnosis here that listen, the problem of humanity is humanity. You know, if I were to talk about my generation, apparently I'm a millennial. How many millennials out there? Do you know what a millennial is? Well, we think I need to drink water. Um, a millennial is apparently someone who's born between, I think, 1980 and 96, 2000, something like that. And uh, I heard the other day, Wayne told me that in one of the devotions or devotionals, the, the Reading the Bible in a year, uh, the plan that I'm so far behind in and I've failed so far. But in any case, um, <laughs> I'm just being honest and I'm confessing that. Yeah. But uh, apparently millennials in, in this devotional, um, it was shared that we're, we're supposedly very fearful. We've got a lot of fear. Is that correct, Wayne? That's what you said, right? And I was thinking about this. Why is this? Why are we apparently very fearful? And then it hit me this week. You know Why? Because we grew up in the 80s and the 90s, man. Like, some of the worst things came out of those two decades. But listen to some examples, right? That This would strike fear into us. And, and some of the things are actually not funny, but it's just a matter of fact. In 1983, the year that I was born, um, HIV and AIDS was discovered. In 1985, they discovered a hole in the ozone layer. Do you guys remember that thing? Is it still there? But how, what, what's the last time we read about that or heard it on the news? Or is the global warming thing, over, that's the same thing? I don't know. Okay. Um, uh, end of the 80s, 90s, we had the first Gulf War. And then, of course, came the invention of the internet. And, and all of these things started spreading across the world. More rumors of war, more famine, more droughts, more natural disasters. Hey, no wonder my generation is living in fear. 
Because, man, the end is near. I grew up in that culture where, you know, it was told to us, and my mom used to tell us a lot that, listen, you are most probably living in the last times. Jesus is going to be coming. You better be ready because if you stay behind, they're going to be chopping off your head. And before they do that, they're going to ask you whether or not you believe in Jesus. And I was like, I'm definitely hoping and praying that my good works will be better. That If there is a rapture, I will be out of this place. If not, I will say, Jesus, you are Lord, so that I can go to heaven. That's sort of like what I grew up in, right? I didn't have an understanding of what grace is and what Jesus had done. But you see, the, the problem with that is, and the point that I want to make about this in our generation, I think this is our issue, and our, our evil comes in this form. We are trying to be really, 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 really good people. Look at Squamish. In Afrikaans, we have a statement that goes like this. You will not understand it. Only Afrikaans people will. It says, Boite blink binne stink. It means outside, blingy. Inside, stinky. Okay? I'm not saying that is Squamish, but you know what? I think that is true to many parts of the world. And, and the way that we view places like Vancouver and Squamish and British Columbia, and it, whether it be Cape Town and South Africa or some of the, the, the best cities and places, we see it's all blingy and shiny and beautiful, and we've got all these things that it's offering to us, and it looks great on the surface. But at the core of people's hearts, there is something wrong because they're trying to earn their righteousness or prove their righteousness through good works. We're trying to do good. No wonder in my generation we have got so many activists, people that fight for the rights of other people, people that fight for the environment to be protected, all good things. But the problem is with my generation is we think we can be good without God. We can figure out our own morality. It's called subjective morality. I can decide what is good and evil. Now, does that sound familiar? A little bit familiar than the first story we read in Genesis of where people decide to do that? I'm going to quickly make a note of an article that I found that illustrates the point of this generation about how we have confused morality and think that we can decide what is good and evil. The title of this article that I found says, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to read the following and I'm going to try my best to do this as gracefully and with mu as much compassion as possible and hear me what I'm saying with these things because this is a very sensitive thing. It says here, Peter Files put themselves under the LGBT umbrella in rebranding effort. A pedophile group is trying to destigmatize pedophilia by calling themselves minor attracted persons rather than pedophiles. And gay groups are up in arms because in the process the same pedophile group is claiming to be part of the LGBT community, even having gone so far as to create their own version of the rainbow flag for Gay Pride Month. And in essence, the MIP group is attempting to rehitch its wagon to the gay community, which for the sake of political and judicial exp expediency, distanced themselves from the pedophile course beginning a few decades ago. So in the beginning, what it's saying is when, when 
these communities started coming out more after the 60s and the sexual revolution in the 70s. Pedophile groups were very closely associated with them, and then in our society that we live in now, there's definitely become a separation or come a separation between the two groups. But that's a little excerpt here of a group that is now fighting for the rights of people that are classified in that category, and they classify themselves as minor attracted persons. Now, um, I want to deal with this sensitively because I want to make it clear. The Bible says sin is sin. There is no one who can stand before God and say, my sin is less than someone else's sin. Or my sin is more than anyone else's sin. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't equate in our minds. But sin is sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. The issue here, though, is that we're living in such a time where people have decided that, okay, we decide what is right or wrong. We decide how our bodies need to be and how I need to function, my sexuality or sexual orientation. And we're rejecting the message that all people have been created in God's image and likeness with a specific first intention to reflect His glory and for His purpose and that He had created us and fashioned us and put us together so that we're man and woman. If we reject that, we have a group that have uplifted themselves. They're a minority group. But now they have lifted themselves to this state where another minority group comes in and say, hold on, what about our rights as this group, uh, minor attracted persons? We feel that we're inclined to also live this lifestyle. Our attraction is, is to minors, but what makes that different than people that feel attracted to the same sex or maybe are transgender? And so the issue is here, you've got one group, LGBT, who is now placing themselves above another group and saying, hold on, you guys, how dare you put yourself in our category? We're better than you. You guys see the issue, the problem. What, what does one group base their morality on? How can one group say, hold on, our moral morality is better than this one? And so we're heading into a situation where because of the fact that we deny an absolute lawgiver, that we deny the truth of God, that the Apostle Paul says in Romans that, listen, what has happened is God has given us over to the lusts of our heart. He's given us over to these things in the world so that we're blinded, so that we follow these things blindly. They are in God's sight wrong and they're sinful, each and every one of it, whether it be my sexual orientation, my practice, whether I am living either heterosexually immoral, because let's be honest about it, the, the majority of sexual sin is actually committed by heterosexuals. Can we just be honest about that? People that are not willing to commit to one man or one woman, but they choose to cohabitate, That's actually, you know, many people make a, a big fuss about these two other groups or this one group, but we ignore that, you know, the majority of people are actually living way more immoral.
But we can say these things, but in the end, the question is, what is the answer? What is the answer to this conundrum? And I want to point you to the sign. Believe the sign. Jesus says, believe the sign of Jonah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me or comes to the Father except through me. No one else is able to tell you how your sexuality is supposed to be lived out other than Jesus because He created you. That does not deny the fact that some of us and all of us sit with an inclination or something. That's the truth, you know. Many people say, but hold on, I was born this way. I believe you. I was born sinful too. I was born with sinful inclinations. You know what? From when I was little, I had an inclination to steal money. I was stealing money around the house until someone caught me and said, listen, that's wrong. At the age of six, I saw my first pornographic image. But the, before that, when I was five, you know, got exposed to something way worse than that, sexually abused. And then in my life after that, the, the consequences of that, dealing with things in my heart, man, that I had no idea what was going on. When I was a little toddler, you know, really being interested in girls and, and thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I want to be like them or maybe I'm a girl. And struggling with these things, real issues, it's real life. When I was uh, in grade 8 and grade 9, went through an identity crisis, you know. Girls didn't like me. I had pimples, you know, I was really weird. Uh, boys age 14, 15 are stupid, we're silly, okay? But I was struggling with this, and I'm being, I'm being, I'm laying myself barrier. Like I felt God say, listen, it's time we need to be real. Just be real, you know? Let's just say things the way that they are. And I'm, I'm saying these things because I, I'm saying that, you know what? This is the message of the gospel. No one is perfect. All of us have need the grace of God. Whether we're sitting with an inclination towards children or, or other uh, or same-sex inclinations, we need to turn to Jesus and see the sign. What is the sign? He points them towards Jonah. He points them towards Jonah. You guys still with me? Okay. Let's go. I'm almost done. We're going to get there. Jonah, what's the story of Jonah? I'm going to summarize it here quickly for you. God calls a man Jonah, a prophet. He says, go to a very evil and a wicked city, Nineveh. They are in Assyria. Go preach to them to repent. Jonah says, yes. He goes. He opens the shop. It's a food truck. He sells falafels and shawarmas. They love it. They eat his food and they think, this guy must be from Yahweh. No, it's not the story, is it? Jonah runs away. He's like, I know these Assyrians. I know Nineveh. They have adulterers. They are idolaters. They have homosexuals. They have murderers. They have rapists. They have pedophiles. They have liars. They have thieves. They have people that blaspheme the name of God. They have all of these people. No way I'm going to go there. He jumps onto a yacht or a ship, and he sails away. He thinks he can get away from God's calling. Here comes a big storm that God sends. 
He falls asleep at the bottom of the ship. The sailors wake him up. They say, listen, what's wrong with you? And they cast lots and they figure out it's his fault. He says, listen, this storm will stop if you throw me in the sea. They do it. They throw him in there. And when the sea calms down, they repent. Isn't that amazing? How sovereign is God that Jonah is disobedient. He tries to run away. And on that ship that he's trying to run away in, the people repent. That's amazing, okay? I thought you guys would be impressed with that point. You're not. Okay, right. So, in the water, God sends a big fish, swallows him. I know for us that have got a foundation of naturalism and science, we think that's impossible. I got to tell you, the other day in South Africa, a guy got swallowed by a whale, almost, almost swallowed, but he was, in the, he was in the mouth of the whale. The whale luckily spit him out, okay? So, it's very, very possible if you think about how big a whale is, a blue whale, Okay? But God sends this fish, and in the belly of the well is Jonah for three days and three nights. And in the belly of the fish, he repents. The fish vomits him out, and then he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to them. And guess what happens? They repent. But, sorry, I'm, I've gone off track. Um, they repent, but Jonah's response is really crazy. Just going to find that scripture. No, I didn't put it up there. Um, he blames God. He said, listen, I know this was going to happen. And he says, you're a gracious and a compassionate God. This is why I didn't want to come. This is why I didn't want to preach to them. And Jesus points them towards a sign because in the end, he says, listen, that message of Jonah, that was about me. That was about me coming. I'm going to be the one who's going to be in the heart of, of the earth for three days and three nights. I'm going to suffer on the cross. And he's pointing them towards the fact that God's heart from the start was for people that were outside of God's covenantal people. It wasn't just Israel. Because Nineveh was a wicked Gentile city. And so... Jesus says, believe the sign, believe that I have come for all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that no one would perish, but have eternal life. He's calling us to believe that sign, believe the resurrection. And you know what? We need to do the work. We need to go and look at the facts. Historically, Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died because of our sin. But then he was crucified so that his blood could atone for our sins so that we can stand before God, not because of our own works be good enough, but because of his works. My generation, listen up. We are not good enough. You're not good enough. It's not nice to admit it, but you're not good enough. I can't say that enough to myself. This week I had to preach it to myself. I'm just not good enough. My life is falling apart. Ask the guys here. Well, it's not holy, you know, in, in total falling apart. But, you know, I'm, I'm not proactive. I come here in the mornings here at the ledge. And you know what? I haven't ordered everything. And, and then we miss buttermilk. And the guys have to run and get the stuff so that I can bake off some goodies. And, you know, it's just a mess. My wife will tell you this as well, right? Like it frustrates her to bits that I... I uh, 
You know, I'm not proactive. Maybe that's currently my biggest sin, okay? So I'm confessing it. And, but I'm saying I'm not good enough. I need the grace of God. And Galatians 2 says this. It says, we will not be justified by works. No one will be justified by works. It says, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of law, no one will be justified. Keeps on repeating that. Only hope is Jesus. So, going to run through the last two lines. I said I was going to be long. I wasn't kidding. Okay. Last two points. See the light. Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with men in this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn them. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The queen of the south, that story, you can go and read it in 1 Kings 10. But she was a Gentile. She was not in God's covenant to people. And she heard of King Solomon. She heard about how he had built this, this glorious temple for God's people. She heard about his wisdom. And she came to see. And you know what the end result was after that? Once again, got the wrong slides. She repents. She turns to God and she says, she gives praise to him. Jesus says he is greater than Solomon. Solomon was, and as according to the Bible, he was the wisest man that ever lived. So Jesus comes and he says to the Pharisees, listen, I am greater than Solomon. I am the wisdom of God. I am the peace of God. Because Solomon was also characterized like in his reign, crazy amount of peace in the history of Israel. And so Jesus says, listen, See the light, like the Gentiles did. See the light, like the Queen of Sheba did. Like the Ninevites, see the light. They were an evil generation. See the light. But how do they see the light? My conclusive point is this. The only way people outside of God's family will see the light is if we are the light. If we are the light. So we need to be the light. My last scripture here. No one lighting up a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who may enter or enter see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you is darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I think the application is clear and straightforward and simple that Jesus tells us here. Jesus is asking each and every one of us, do you see me? Do you see the sign of Jonah? Do you see my life, death and resurrection for you? My blood that was shed for you? doesn't matter what your sin or what the darkness is within you. Do you see me? And he warns us that, listen, there's going to be a day of judgment coming. There is a day coming where everything 
will be wiped away. The science proves it. I believe it's the second law of thermodynamics that, that basically says, right, that everything is burning out. The sun is going to burn out. The, the, the stars is going to burn out. This earth, we can do whatever we want. I'm saying we need to protect it. Yes, we are the stewards of this earth, but it's going to burn out. Life is going to end. There is a time of judgment coming, but we are too busy. We're looking at this life, and we think this is all there is, was, and ever will be. We think we've arrived, especially in this town. I've got to tell you, we think we've arrived in heaven. When I came here last year for the first time, I felt God say, watch out, Rudy, you have not arrived in heaven. This is not heaven. You've got no idea what heaven is. I know in my first sermon, I saw Costco. I said I saw Costco. I thought that was heaven. Jesus corrected my theology there as well. It's not heaven. We have got no idea how much God, how glorious He's going to be when we're with Him in heaven. But our challenge is here at the end for each and every one of us. We see out of these two stories, the Queen of Sheba and with Jonah, we have two groups. We have the Ninevites and we have the Queen of Sheba. They're Gentiles. They don't know God. They don't know the Scriptures. They don't know the, the Bible verses. They don't have that upbringing. An evil people group, but God has grace and compassion on them. But how do they come to faith in God? There's only one way that they can get that faith. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, he said this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Not hitting them over the head with a Bible, lovingly telling them in love the gospel, living it out with them. But listen, faith comes through hearing the word, Paul says. He says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Last statement. Our mission that Jesus gave us is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 8. But in my opinion, in my opinion, it is to love what it looks like to make those disciples. It's with an absolute compassionate love and empathetic love to tell people what the good news is. It's not a comfortable message for people to hear. And what that also looks like is to tell them that, listen, you have one right. And this is it. All who believe in Jesus, who will receive Him as the right to become a child of God. For my generation, I'm, I'm saying this. We want to fight the rights for people. Fight for this right. To tell people that they have the right to become a child of God. The question is, what does that look like for you in your workplace, in your family? The only way we can do that 
is by the power of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So I'm going to pray and uh, um, the worship team can come to the front so long. But I want to invite you to think about this today. Consider it. Consider Jesus. Consider the work that he had done for you on the cross. But ask God by his spirit to convict you of your sin. There is no other way, no other spirituality, no other religion. You can go and do the research. All other faiths, all other religions are all about you having to do work. You have to do good things so that God loves you, so that he approves of you. It's only Jesus' message of Christianity that says it's because of what he has done. He came down. He did the work for us in order so that we can be grafted in, so that we can be adopted into his family, so that we can be forgiven for sin. That's the only way. But the beautiful promise is that he fills us with his joy by his spirit when we do that. I told you that story, what happened to me when I was 17. The end result was when I was 23, I finally came to that conclusion that I cannot be good on my own. After living a life of drinking, partying at university, sexually immoral, messing up almost that I lost my wife. At that stage, we were dating. But by the grace of God, He brought me back. By the grace of God, I was able to turn to Him, acknowledge my sin, ask forgiveness, be forgiven by people that I'd hurt. And from there, walk this path of being sanctified and being in a place where I work at my salvation in fear and trembling. Let's, uh, let's just pray and then we're going to take communion and Wayne will lead us in communion. But yeah, let's just bow our heads.